Section 10 of On the Witness Stand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michelle Kinge, Surrey, United Kingdom. On the Witness Stand. Essays on Psychology and Crime by Hugo Munsterberg The Traces of Emotions, Part 2 But the unintentional movements may become symptoms of feelings in still a different way. The thing which awakes our feeling starts our actions towards the interesting object. All muscle reading or thought reading works by means of such a principle. The Ouija board of the spiritualists is a familiar instrument for the indication of such impulses. And if we want a careful registering of the unnoticeable movement, we may use an automatograph, a plate which lies on metal balls and thus follows every impulse of the hand which lies flat on it. The plate has an attachment by which the slightest movements are registered on a slowly moving surface. If the arm is held in a loop which hangs from the ceiling, the hand will still more easily follow the weakest impulse without our knowledge. Ask your subject to think attentively of a special letter in the alphabet and then spread 25 cards with the letters in a half circle about him. His arm on the automatograph will quickly show the faint impulse towards the letter of which he thought, although he remains entirely unaware of it. And if a witness or a criminal in front of a row of a dozen men claims that he does not know any one of them, he will point on the automatograph nevertheless towards the man whom he really knows and whose face brings him thus into emotional excitement. Still easier may be the graphic record if it is not necessary to show a definite direction but simply a sudden reaction. The hand may lie on a rubber bulb or on a capsule covered with very elastic rubber and the slightest movement of the fingers will press the air in the capsule which through a rubber tube is conducted to a little bulb that pushes a lever and the lever registers its up and down motions. The accused may believe himself to be motionless and yet when he hears the dangerous name of the place of his crime or of an accomplice his unintentional muscle contraction will be registered. It is only a question of technique thus to take exact record of the faintest trembling when a little cap is attached to the finger. The emotional interest may betray itself in an interesting way even through movements which are ordinarily not consciously guided like those of our hands and fingers. I am thinking of the eye movements. I found that our eyes may go their own way without our knowledge. My subject, for instance, 
looks straight forward. I show him a card with a printed word, which is indifferent to him. We have agreed beforehand that after seeing and reading the card, he is to close his eyes, to turn his head somewhat sidewards, and then to open his eyes again. The experiment shows that if he does perform these acts, his eyes, after the sideward movement of his head, look in the same direction in which his head points. I repeat this several times, always with the same result. Now, I take a card with a word which I know is emotionally important to my subject from an earlier experience. The result is suddenly changed. He reads it, closes his eyes, turns his head, opens his eyes again, and without his knowledge, his eyes have not followed his head, but are still turned towards the exciting word. The feeling interest has been betrayed by the unintentional backward rotation of the eyeballs. I may show in this way to the suspected man one indifferent thing after another, his eyes will follow his head. Then I show an object which was instrumental in the crime or which was present at the place of the deed or which belonged to the victim and, if he recognises it, his eyes will stick to it while his head is moving and after. Yes, the police know from old experience that not only do the eyes want to be back at the exciting scene, but the whole man is magnetically drawn to the spot where the crime was committed. Dostoevsky showed us how the murderer, almost against his own will, returns to the place of his emotion and thus runs upon his doom. We are still speaking, of course, of movements, and yet of an entirely different process if we consider the breathing. Our inspirations and expirations can be registered in finest detail, and a variety of elegant methods are available. Perhaps the simplest pneumograph consists of a tube made of spiral wire and covered with rubber to be attached by ribbons to the chest. Every respiratory movement lengthens and shortens the tube and this presses a part of the air contained into a little capsule, the cover of which follows the changing pressure of the air and moves a registering lever, usually a large straw which enlarges the movements of the cover. The end of the straw but touches the smoked surface of a slowly revolving drum. It thus writes in the thin layer of smoke a wave line which shows the subtlest features of the breathing. It is a simple task to measure every element of such a curve, every change in the length, in the height, in the angle, in the regularity of the wave. And that means every change in the rapidity, rhythm, distribution, pauses and strength of the breathing.
As soon as such delicate methods of registration are applied, the intimate relation between feeling and breath becomes evident. Pleasure, for instance, makes the respiration weaker and quicker, displeasure stronger and slower, excitement makes it stronger and quicker, acquiescence weaker and slower. But such generalizations cannot do any justice to the manifoldness of changes that may occur. Every ripple on the interests of the mind reflects itself in the changes of the pneumographic wave. It may be an agreeable or disagreeable smell or taste. It may be exciting or depressing news from without or a fancy from within. The same holds true for the heartbeat, measured by the blood wave in the arteries. Such a pulse writer is called a sphygmograph. It may be attached, for instance, to the wrist. A delicate lever presses against the wall of the blood vessel, just where the finger of the physician would feel the pulse. The lever is attached again to the thin rubber, which covers an air chamber and the changing pressure of air is again transmitted to a long straw, which writes an enlarged record of the movement on the revolving drum, rotating regularly by means of clockwork. Here again, the height and length and form of every pulse beat may have its own physiognomy. When we write pulse and breathing together on the same drum, we see at once that even every ordinary inspiration changes the pulse. While we inhale, we have a pulse different from the pulse while we exhale. Far more influential are the feelings. Again, it is only an insufficient abstraction if we generalize and say, pleasure heightens and retards the pulse. Displeasure weakens and accelerates it, or excitement makes the pulse stronger and quicker, acquiescence weaker and slower. But there is still another way open to observe the changes in our blood vessels. We may examine the quantity of blood, for instance, which streams to a limb by means of the so-called plephysmograph. The arm is held by a large tube filled with water, a rubber ring closes the tube. The change of blood supply, which makes the arm swell, changes the pressure, which the water exerts against the air, which is again conducted through a rubber tube to a recording lever. Every emotional excitement speaks in the blood supply of every limb. All these instruments of registration have belonged for decades to the household equipment of every physiological laboratory. It was therefore a sad spectacle when recently scores of American papers told their readers that I had invented the sphygmograph and the automatograph and the plephysmograph this summer. They might just as well have added that I invented the telegraph last spring. To recent years belongs only the application of these instruments for the study of feelings and emotions.
But we may go still further and point to expressions of emotions which are entirely beyond human senses. If we put our hands on two copper plates and make the weak galvanic current of a battery run through the plates and our body, we can, with the help of a delicate galvanometer, measure the slightest variations of the resistance to the current. Experiments show that such changes occur Indeed, if our brain is excited, any emotional disturbance influences the resistance. It seems that the activity of the sweat glands in the skin is under the nervous influence of our feelings, and the functioning of these glands alters the electrical conditions. A word we hear may excite us, and at once the needle of the galvanometer becomes restless. There is no more uncanny betrayal of our inmost mind. Or we may point to the curious facts of the knee-jerk. A little hammer falls always from the same height on the tendon of the knee, and every time the leg makes a jerking reflex movement, the angle of which can be registered. Experiments show again that this angle changes with the emotional excitement of the mind. Evidently, the brain sends impulses down to the lower part of the spinal cord, where the knee reflex is produced, and the emotion inhibits those messages and changes the whole function. Even the temperature of the body seems to be influenced by excitement. The experienced physician knows how the emotion of the patient can change his feverish state, and the experiment seems to indicate similar changes for the normal state. There is thus really no doubt that experimental psychology can furnish amply everything which the court demands. It can register objectively the symptoms of the emotions and make the observation thus independent of chance judgment. And moreover, it can trace emotions through involuntary movements, breathing, pulse, and so on, where ordinary observation fails entirely. And yet, it seems to me that a great reluctance, and even a certain scepticism, as to the practical application of these methods, is still in order. Firstly, the studies in this field of the bodily registration of emotion are still in their beginnings, and so far many difficulties are not overcome. There are still contradictions in the results of various scholars, especially, we know, too little yet about the evident individual differences to make. For instance, a breathing and pulse curve today a basis for legal condemnation or acquittal. The facts themselves are so complicated that much further work must be done before we can disentangle the practical situations. Secondly, experiment gives us so far not sufficient hold for the discrimination of the guilty conscience and the emotional excitement of the innocent. The innocent man, especially the nervous man, may grow as much excited on the witness stand as the criminal when the victim and the means of the crime are mentioned. 
His fear that he may be condemned unjustly may influence his muscles, glands and blood vessels as strongly as if he were guilty. Experimental psychology cannot wish to imitate, with its subtle methods, the injustice of barbarous police methods. The real use of the experimental emotion method is therefore so far probably confined to those cases in which it is to be found out whether a suspected person knows anything about a certain place or man or thing. Thus, if a new name, for instance, is brought in, the method is reliable. The innocent, who never heard the name before, will not be more excited if he hears that one among a dozen others. The criminal who knows the name as that of a witness of the crime will show the emotional symptoms. And yet it may be rash to propose narrow limits for the practical use, as the rapid progress of experimental criminopsychology may solve tomorrow those difficulties which seem still to stand in the way today. End of section 10